Hi guys, welcome back to the potty. Um, just tried a bit of beatboxing and singing there at the start because obviously I'm not doing the the funny voice, the kind of wacky voices anymore at the start of episode. So you know I'm just trying to keep keep it fluid, trying to mix it up, trying to keep it fruity, trying to keep it cool. And I'm willing to try anything in that regard, guys. I won't faff around too much at the start of this interview. I think I'm just going to get on with the interview. If I do say so myself, it's a humdinger of an interview. My guest is kind of what we would say here in Cork is unreal. So I'm not going to faff too much at the start. I'll get on with it. I'll just I'll just tee it up, I suppose. First of all, I'll give you a sense of... Uh, I'm faffing straight away. I'll give you a sense of the night I did the interview, right? Picture the scene. It's coming up to five o'clock. We're scheduled to converse on the internet at quarter past five. It's uh, piss and rain, as we say here. Traffic's cat, as we say here. Catastrophic. Um, I'm having a kind of a kind of slight tete-on-tete with my teenage daughter. You know, there's nothing really being said, but it's all like the, the kind of thoughts are vicious, really. You know, I'm in the wrong, I'm cranky. And then I kind of end up with this kind of slightly existential crisis about ten past five where I'm kind of like rushing up to my hovel upstairs in the gaff where I do the podcast. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're a comedian. Like, would you go away and just try and get the comedy right instead of like wandering into politics here like a fool? You know, like I have a, you know basic kind of understanding of British politics I, I suppose I'm I'm a fan of it if that doesn't sound too bizarre but here I am about to talk to somebody who does this for a living like one of the UK's most well thought of broadcasters and his specialised subject is kind of Brexit you know what are you doing you goof but then we start the interview and about five minutes into it I'm like hello this guy is sound so sound so generous with his time I just totally relaxed then and we ended up having a hoolie now, I've described everything about the, the build-up to the interview without actually describing the person himself at all. Ha, <laughs> what am I like? He is the host of one of the biggest radio shows in the UK on LBC. He is a best-selling author. If you are an internet person, you may have come across one of his many trenchant and eloquent Brexit-related monologues. My guest is, of course, James O'Brien. You saw that on the thing you clicked into. Now, guys, I'm not a braggart, as you know, but... People are saying that this is one of the best interviews that he's ever done. He kind of texts me that afterwards. We talk Brexit shambles from the English perspective. You see, we've done Scotland, we've done Wales, now we're doing England. You see, there is a plan. We talk Scottish independence. We talk about the tedious us and themness of Twitter. And, my friends, we talk about Irish unity and the average English person's understanding of loyalism. You may need to sit down or strap yourself in or whatever you generally do to control yourself when you hear these answers. So I think I'm going to shut up now and let you enjoy the interview. I want to kick off by by asking, if you don't mind, I know you've probably answered it before, but like, let's go right back just for a moment to 2016. I feel in Ireland here, we're kind of led to believe that Britain kind of did this to itself through some sort of empire nostalgia. And we feel there's a little bit of racism involved. I just would love your perspective for our listeners. Is this in any way partly true? And I know it's a big question, but why now, in hindsight, did Leave win? Right. I think reaching for the racism explanation is obvious and it's depressing and it's probably a bit lazy, but it doesn't make it any less true. I I was taking calls on the radio show from people who, with a straight face, after the event this is. I did most of my work after the event for for reasons that we, we may get into. But they'd tell me things like they voted to leave the European Union because there were too many Muslims or there were too many brown faces in Sainsbury's. So the idea that, you know, that didn't ex- extend to a deep and unpleasant othering of 
actual Europeans, as opposed to Middle Eastern people or, or people of a of a different faith, is sadly ridiculous. I spent a while, Tyke, kind of trying to convince myself it wasn't that bad. And, and there's certainly a line that holds, which is not everybody who voted for Brexit is racist, but everybody who's racist voted for Brexit. There's no there's no sugaring that particular pill. The the other element of it, though, and I, and I don't know what the breakdown would be of those demographics, but the other element of it that perhaps you didn't see in Ireland is the two, three decades of being told that the European Union was an entity acting against our interests. So if you think of tabloid journalism, as I always do, as seeking to take the very loosest framework of facts and then manipulate them in the way best guaranteed to get the most visceral and the most violent emotional reaction, then telling people that they're under siege or telling people that they're under attack, whether it's from unidentified, quotes, foreigners, end quotes, or whether it's from a a malevolent entity, which is both foreign and not foreign, because we were members of it. When I first started doing my job on the radio, I was staggered to see, and this is nearly 20 years ago, things like the EUSSR or the Fourth Reich, appearing quite regularly from people that back then we could giggle at and ignore, but who, by the time the referendum came around, they were very much front and centre in public life and in politics. So I think the thing that I've taken the longest to properly appreciate is the logic of responding to that by leaving. And and I could say you've been gaslit or you've been groomed or you've been manipulated. They're quite pejorative verbs. But you have merely been persuaded that the European Union is your enemy. And almost all of the mass media on this side of the sea has been adding to that impression and bolstering that misconception. Then actually that there is a sort of almost ineluctable logic to then saying all right then let's get out of it lads this is this is terrible look at these bastards and and look at what they're doing to us and then get out and of course the media failure was offering up the truth as as is so often the case the media failure was sort of saying look it's flawed a lot of these conversations are dull it's far from perfect but we're a hell of a lot better off in than we are out and here is why And then when the referendum came round, instead of doing that, it was never about the benefits of being in there. It was about the idiocy or the stupidity of leaving. And that immediately kicked open the doors to the whole sneering, condescending metropolitan elite narrative and, of course, the Project Fear narrative. So we left because lots of people had been persuaded that somehow we'd be better off without all of the workers and residents that had come here from overseas, from anywhere overseas, to be honest with you, as I've explained. And also because the entity itself, you know, Brussels, this word, this this category had been very, very successfully described as something acting against our interests. And, and that makes the reaction quite understandable, I think. Fascinating. I was talking to the Northern Independence Party and they were talking about the North-South divide and that being a factor. They were kind of saying again that the, the racism thing, it's overextended, it's overemphasized and that actually it's partly a protest vote from the North. Would you have like any comment on that being an element? My comment would be bollocks, actually, <laughs> right. on that one. I, I mean, not least because some of the heaviest leave voting areas were quite 
well-to-do areas in the southeast. This notion that being in the north meant that, I mean, a protest vote against what? Against the north-south divide. And you look at the funding that, that came in from the European Union was very evenly distributed. I mean, yeah, all right, some, some fishing communities had been persuaded that the European Union was, was their enemy and that the reason why their lives and livelihoods had diminished was, was because of membership. But they've been fairly rapidly disabused of that notion. No, I, I, I don't think. I don't think that's true at all. I don't even think, and I haven't got it all at my fingertips, but I don't even think the statistics back up that argument. I think conurbations and, and big towns and cities broadly went remain, and then smaller towns and rural areas broadly went leave. So there might be a city-country, and that's why metropolitan liberal elite was such a loaded phrase, but there might be a towny-country-cousin divide but i don't think there's a north south divide and, and of course scotland remains so yeah in the context of the united kingdom where does the north stop and the south begin northern ireland remained yeah. scotland remained it's not nah, i don't buy that at all so i've had a good few scottish and welsh perspectives and i would just love to get yours well your sense just being on the ground but also listening to people on your show that like you know what's the mood like in england again it's hard for us in ireland to get a sense of that we just see the sensational aspect of it. we see empty shells we see people brawling at petrol stations but what's the <laughs> general uh, what's the general mood as the kind of consequences of brexit kick in now we're still in this sort of bizarre purgatory this bizarre like limbo you know where so this week royal dutch shell announced that they were moving their headquarters from holland to london which is i think a mixture of preferential tax regimes in london and particularly strict environmental requirements in rotterdam so you will have them all queuing up on social media to go ha ha Ha-ha, Brexit, ha-ha, you see, it's going great. And they'll ignore all the things you've just mentioned yeah. and genuinely ignore them. And they'll literally turn the page. They'll literally put their fingers in their ears and go, la-la-la-la-la, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. Or they'll claim everybody's got shortages, which is true, but ours are the worst. Or that everybody is dealing with some of these problems, which is true, but ours are the worst. And that level of denialism is still very prominent. I think people are quietly waking up to it. The polling is a lot more indicative i think than the public rhetoric and the media reporting the polling is sort of quietly reversing at full speed away from the idea that we're better off out than in look at how our country is currently constituted the conservative party which is actually the brexit party in all but name the expulsion of the mps who had even a scintilla of of integrity before the last election will i think history will record that as a really profound moment but you think of Philip Hammond, whether you like him or not. Philip Hammond was Chancellor of the Exchequer. And in the blink of an eye, he went from the second highest office in the land to being expelled from his own party because he insisted on pointing out reality. You know, he was Chancellor to Theresa May. Theresa May was desperate to leave, but she was doing it from the perspective of knowing that she was mitigating damage. She was no fully paid up EU fan, far from it. She was, a, if you like, a reluctant Remainer. And when she ended up with a top job, she knew her job was to walk this tightrope that you could call reality between the rhetoric that had led to leave and the knowledge that it had to be delivered, despite the fact that it was, shall we say, suboptimal. But I always think of Philip Hammond, because to go from Chancellor to persona non grata... Mm in the blink of an eye is incredible. And I use him just to highlight what the Conservative Party consists of now. And and it consists of your, your ERG headbangers, who, you know, are the most deluded and the most dangerous people probably ever to sit in Parliament. 
And then you've got this new wing, and this perhaps is where your point about the North comes from, your man's point about the North, this new wing of Tory MPs. But what you've got to remember is that the Brexit in 2019 was not the same as Brexit in 2016. The Brexit in 2019 was this mythical castle on the hill that nasty people like me and... uh, oh, I don't know, Gary Lineker and Rory Stewart and Anna Subri were preventing people from reaching. Yes. Because in 2016, we were still going to be in the customs union, but Boris Johnson was adamant it wasn't going to affect freedom of movement. By 2019, it had become a completely different mythical target. So, you know, the unicornism had been allowed to run right. So what they cleverly did with the connivance of almost every newspaper in the country was punt this nonsense about democracy being denied. That red wall pro-Brexit party or part of the party was kind of committed to resisting a a revision of Brexit rather than actually being passionate about delivering Brexit. Do you see what I mean? They've been turned into a a rearguard action. So that's your other half of the party. And then you've got the few people who know it's mad who are just quiet and they come up to me at events and sit down quietly next to me and go, just so you know, and obviously this can't go any further, but I agree (laughs) with absolutely everything you said. And there's there's a few few of them left in the party and there's plenty that that, that got slung out so if you take that and then you take the Rupert Murdoch Barclay Brothers male axis so that would include the Sun the Mail the Telegraph pretty much the three heaviest hitters in, in British newspapers and they're still in various degrees of denial and delusion weirdly the, and the Express, of course, which is owned by the Mirror Group, not by any of those three. Weirdly, the Mail is closest to sensible now, having been the maddest frog. Do you reckon? The, yeah, absolutely it is. Oh. I mean, by far the maddest frog in the box, of course. And Mail <laughs> were the ones that led the line on Owen Patterson last week. Yeah. And it's no mistake that all of these people defending the corruption are all prominent Brexiters. You know, it goes through mm. that wing of the party like Blackpool through a stick of rock. But if you've got all of the major newspapers and a party of government with 80 seats majority, and the party is built on Brexit, it's quotes, get Brexit done. You can't have a, an objective reporting of facts. You, they literally can't do it. Give you a great example in the mail today an article that I think was predicated on that shell story and that I mean shows how desperate they are one of their writers tried to cobble together a piece about how oh it's all going a lot better than they said it would and I think you might need to check these numbers but I think it said something like they predicted 80,000 job losses in the city there have only been 7,600 job losses in the city moving abroad to other countries that proves Brexit is working that's an achievement yeah, like wow. that's now a positive. And that's chapter we're in now. That's the one of the maddest. Every chapter's madder than the last one. But mm-hmm. victory now is things could actually be worse. Therefore, they're good. Therefore, they're better. You know, the, the talk of sunlit uplands, 350 million quid a week for the NHS. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, they need us more than we need them. The bonfire of red tape and all the rest of it. That doesn't need, no one has those conversations anymore. All they do now is say, well, look, we've only lost 8,000 jobs there. And, and other countries are missing lorry drivers as well. Yes. There's a picture in Brussels of a supermarket. There's a strike. I don't know if you saw this. There was a strike in a food distribution centre in Belgium, yeah. which meant that some supermarket for a very short period of time in Brussels, had some empty shelves. Man, they almost had an orgasm over this. this <laughs> Strikes everywhere. And they're taking pictures <laughs> of the shelves. You see, everybody's got food. And you just, I mean, I, I, I sometimes Google 30 seconds worth of Googling to get to the fact of a story that Brexiters are still punting halfway around the world with wheels of nonsense on it. So that's where we are still. And I sense a parting of the clouds. The last couple of weeks, and as the curtains of COVID part, then the reality of Brexit is going to become a hell of a lot clearer. There'll be some people that never admit it. It's just a question of how long they stay on to the power that they currently hold. 
Excellent. Let me get to Ireland. So again, this is just your assessment of things. Obviously, you know what you're talking about. You've experienced it. Like, I'm just wondering, do you think that the Brexiteers actually forgot in some sense that they held jurisdiction over the north of Ireland? Or did they actually willfully use it as an opportunity to get rid? What's your assessment of that? I'll tell you what, I've spent the last few years trying to work out whether something is just sort of weapons grade fuckwittery or some sort of sinister master plan. And most of the time, much as you'd like to believe in a sinister master plan, odd though that sounds, because at least there's a plan. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the time, I think it just comes down to epic stupidity. Really, really Mm. thick. Uh, A combination of thickness or ignorance, actually, is probably fairer, because there might be other fields in which they are knowledgeable. But epic ignorance plus arrogance times by callousness. So Cummings will go on the record and say, we never gave a monkey's about Northern Ireland. Mm. Cummings will say that and has said that. The rest of them pretended or believed, and that, again, is one of those tensions that I can't unravel. Did they honestly believe something that was palpable nonsense or did they pretend to believe palpable nonsense in order to get the bigger project over the line? The idea that the Good Friday Agreement would be unthreatened by a withdrawal from regulatory alignment the single market insists upon was so obviously stupid to me. I still look back on that. I developed this theory of what I call the flesh-coloured body stocking because the emperor was so obviously naked. But when you do what I do every day for three hours and for quite a while, we do three hours a day on Brexit and how bonkers it was. And you'd sit there looking at what the people in charge of the country and the people in charge of the media were saying. And then on the other hand, you'd think, but that just can't hold. You can't have two separate regulatory frameworks on the island of Ireland without driving a coach and horses through the Belfast Agreement. You just can't. It seems so obvious to me that I began to think, well, maybe you're the one. Maybe you're missing something and the emperor's not actually naked, but he's wearing a flesh-coloured body stocking and you just can't see it. To you, he looks naked, but to Theresa May and Jacob Rees-Mogg and the editor of The Telegraph and and all the rest of them, that maybe there is something else going on here that means it's not as pant-wettingly stupid and as obviously dangerous as it seems to be to me. And obviously... There was no flesh-coloured body stocking. The next two questions actually tie in with the same theme. So maybe I know what you're going to say, but I would love your sense of what mainland Brits make of loyalists and loyalism. Do they actually understand? I haven't got a clue, Ty. I haven't got a clue. Not a Scooby-Doo, not the beginning of a clue. They'd struggle. I don't want this to sound patronising or condescending. I'm obviously of Irish heritage and my knowledge of the troubles, my knowledge of the broader history of the island is pretty poor. But it's, I'd imagine it's its in the sort of top 10% of the, <laughs> of, 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 of the mainland. They, they haven't got a clue. So when they start setting fire to buses in Newtonards, yes. I cannot imagine anybody on a news desk of an English newspaper, a London-based news desk, would have been able to explain why that had happened. Wow. I honestly don't. So we know the, the broad sectarian history. We're familiar with the IRA bombing campaigns on the mainland, not with much else, not with the loyalist terrorist in Northern Ireland. And then, of course, you just have that football hooligan approach, which is probably the closest that anyone comes to articulating it, the sort of no surrender to the IRA or the the UBF tattoos or whatever it might be. They don't know what they're doing either. They've just been told what side they're on. Therefore, they scream it to the rafters. But no, nothing. No knowledge, no understanding. Absolutely none whatsoever. Extending all the way to Stormont. No, no one would be able to tell you what it, what the DUP are motivated by or what they care about. The only time it's begun to perhaps resonate is when, and this doesn't get reported in England either, the fact that trade between the North and the South is, is booming, I believe. I mean, yes. It's certainly yeah. heading in the right direction. And the ferry traffic swerving 
Great Britain and going straight from Ireland to the continent, it's also through the roof. Holyhead's gone off a cliff. So that is the bit that perhaps makes people here realise how much more of the motivation is emotional rather than intellectual or historical rather than commercial. So, so you know, it would be like, but why are they so upset about this if it's actually really good for Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland retains United Kingdom membership and single market membership. Mm. It really has in many ways got the best of both worlds. How can the governing party be cross about this? And the answer is, as you know, but as very few people in this country do, is because they feel less British. They feel less British because of Czech. Because you now have to go through a process to get a box of widgets from Birmingham to Belfast that you don't have to go through to get a box of widgets from Birmingham to Brighton. They feel less British. And because they feel less British, they want to blow the whole thing up in the context of the protocol. And if we're honest, probably in the context of the whole Good Friday Agreement as well. There's a journalist here, Patricia McBride, and her analogy to the British mainland understanding of loyalists is like the uncle at the wedding. And it's he's trying to figure out like, oh, who are you again? You know, <laughs> what cousin are you again? It just seems to me that it's quite tragic because, you know, they kind of deserve more, you know, but I know obviously that sounds patronizing for somebody from an Irish Republican background to say, but they, they actually do deserve more than that. Like, but yeah. Yes, I love that analogy. And it's the raging uncle as well, isn't it? The, <laughs> yeah. What's so fucking angry about? Does anyone know who he is? What's he so cross about? And the kinship that they feel is simply not reflected on this side of the sea. It's simply not mirrored. It's very big of you, generous of you, to say that you feel sorry for them because it's pathetic. The decent response to patheticness is pathos. And apart from the time Theresa May bung them a billion quid and then sort of ballsed everything up as a consequence, that perhaps was the mother of all tummy tickles, wasn't it, in the... (laughs) In the history of that relationship, in what is supposed to be the Conservative and Unionist Party, of course. But yes. no, the Unionist bit, I think, gets at the very least, it gets put in brackets. Yeah. <laughs> kind of our version of you, basically, is a guy called Tony Connolly, and he's made a great point. I thought that. Oh, well, um, I, I'll take that as a compliment. Tag. I don't know whether Tony would or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my words, I suppose, his like, but uh, yeah. but uh, but no, but he he was kind of making the point that British negotiators they were kind of outmaneuvered by the EU, and again, it's partly because. He felt the EU had a better understanding of the north of Ireland. Now, obviously, the Irish government and the likes of Martine Anderson of Sinn Féin are are in the room. But again, and I think you've kind of covered this, like, what's the problem with the British negotiator there? Is he ill-prepared? Is he arrogant? Is he hubristic? Like, why why is he messing up? (laughs) We're back to the sinister master plan versus Mm. epic (laughs) fuckwittery again, aren't we? I I, I think, because of course, again, the way that a lot of it gets reported here is as if we forced the climb down or, or we've pulled off another amazing bit of you know negotiating genius yes uh, which is sorry say slightly at odds with objective reality again but in the case of david frost he was the head of the scotch whiskey association and a campaigner or at least a fairly vocal supporter of remain in that role because obviously scotch whiskey is a big export market including into europe i don't know i think he just got his head turned he was a, a professional mediocrity <laughs> 
And then the ball came out the back of the scrum and it ended up in his hands. And the next thing you know, he's got a seat in the House of Lords. And six months later, he's arguing furiously that we have to renege upon the negotiation that was so brilliant that it got him a seat in the House of Lords. So trying to work out whether there's any wisdom in this system of events is beyond me. And that, these are the moments where you sit there and think, what the flip? So within less than a year of doing a lap of honour, Christmas Eve in this country, people were pulling crackers thinking that we'd signed some amazing deal. Within less than a year, the fellow who negotiated got a peerage for doing it signed it delivered it and ran around the pitch doing cartwheels celebrating it was explaining why we had to abandon it and it was all the other fellas fault it was all the other side's fault that we'd signed this pesky deal in the first place you have brandon lewis standing up in the house of commons and saying that we were prepared to break international law (laughs) in in a very limited and specific way and and still this is what i mean about the context of an 80 seat majority and a completely supine media still these surreal moments and these surreal episodes either get ignored or they get reported in a really topsy-turvy way so i think frost plays as with everything but look to give him half a break he doesn't know what johnson's going to do next any more than johnson does yes so there's no kind of mission that he has been sent upon everything is 24-hour news cycle. Everything is a 24-hour news cycle. So this idea that we are absolutely adamant that the European Court of Justice can have no jurisdiction over anything on the island of Ireland, over anything on Northern Ireland. I mean, I imagine that he's doing that in good faith. And I also imagine he knows that Boris Johnson could hang him out to dry on that precise point, probably before we finish talking, it could happen. I mean, that's the nature of everything. We've seen Jacob Rees-Mogg stood up in the House of Commons today and introduced legislation that's the polar opposite. This is with the Owen Paterson case. The legislation that he strenuously and vigorously introduced less than a fortnight ago. They throw a coin in the air this lot. They shout heads and they shout tails. And then however it lands, they start high-fiving each other and congratulating themselves <laughs> on being brilliant at things. So I think Frost sees belligerence as a winning tactic. And I think he acts secure in the knowledge that even if he soiled himself on national television, the Daily Telegraph would write it up as a glorious victory. And I think he sees his job as essentially clinging on for as long as he can to this sort of weird little 15 minutes of fame that he's achieved despite all of the evidence of his suitability for the job or his track record of what you could be called qualifications. He's probably the embodiment of the current madness of the current chapter that we've got this fellow out there apparently representing our interests. And what the European Union negotiators did was speak to business in Northern Ireland, essentially, and just say, what, what do you need, lads? What's, what's good for you? We've got to get over this. We're going to have to have that. We can't tolerate that. What's going to work for you? How can we help clear up this mess that your government has made without stepping back from our lines in the sand, which are our red lines, which are never going to move, which are going to be the, the indivisibility of the four free Quick segue on a kind of a slightly personal question, but something that I just wondered, like sometimes I share your excellent monologues and you get comments underneath it going, you are aware that this guy criticised Corbyn, because as you're aware, Twitter is this kind of Manichaean, black and white, and and because you did that, and I like Corbyn, that uh, Brexit, it's all your fault and you're evil. I just wonder, how do you, like... Just on a personal level, how do you kind of manage some of the trolling or that the no nuance hellhole that is Twitter? Does it bother you? Like part of the answer to that question is the old horseshoe, which is you could just as easily have said, "I share one of your monologues on Twitter," and I immediately got bombarded by people saying that he's a anti-white, Britain-hating, woke monstrosity who is responsible votes because of people like him that we voted for Brexit because we wanted to annoy him. And and I think they find the comparison I make between those two constituencies equally offensive. But unfortunately, the language is identical. Yeah. And that 
moderates any personal animus I may have, or if I've been doing it too long to get particularly upset or frustrated by it. And again, I'm afraid that describing Jeremy Corbyn's unelectability, which was clear from 2018 onwards, does not make you responsible for Jeremy Corbyn's unelectability. I mean, it really doesn't. Any more than describing the ridiculousness of Brexit makes you responsible for the ridiculousness of Brexit, which is what the other lot try to argue on social media. The people that point out it's raining are the reason why you're getting wet. (laughs) is simply not defensible. I hope a time comes. I I get a little bit more, I think as I lean to the left, I probably feel a little bit more, I choose this word very carefully, surprised by the ones you described as these sort of Corbyn supporters who are like the Japanese soldiers being found on a Pacific island in the 1960s who are still fighting the war. And if you could put some effort into going after the government Mm. and then come back, well, you didn't. You put all your effort into going after Jeremy Corbyn. And I just didn't. For every hundred Rotten Tomatoes I lobbed at the Tories, I'd lob one in the direction of the last leader of the Labour Party. And it wouldn't even be a a Rotten Tomato. It would just be a little piece of paper saying, he's never going to win an election. How do I know that? Because I speak to voters every single day. And the voters and the callers I value the most are the ones who have got a bit of switchability, who, who are not so Manichaean or are not so wedded to their position that they'll never move. And to win a general election, a leader of the Labour Party has to win votes from people who have voted Conservative in their lives. And I knew that was never going to happen. And it it upsets me slightly to see so many people who who I think somewhere deep inside must know better, but they have to carry on convincing themselves that the people who accurately describe Jeremy Corbyn's electoral chances are somehow responsible for Jeremy Corbyn's electoral chances. And it probably doesn't help, but they are exactly the same as the people who think that those of us pointing out why Brexit is ridiculous are responsible for Brexit going so badly. They're peas in a pod, mate, and it it won't win me any friends, I don't think, pointing that out. It doesn't make it untrue. Well, that's it. I mean, like my own experience here is I'm involved in groups that are hoping to raise discussions about a border poll and, and hopefully get in this country to reunite at some point. And I'm, I'm open mm. about that. I'm not part of any political party. But you get people like if I if I speak to somebody from a different political party here, I'm just a fucking comedian. I'm not a politician. If I speak to somebody from a different political background, be they unionist or even just across yeah. the floor of the of the doll here, I usually lose followers because the official line is like, oh man, like you're now an apologist for all those regressive policies of that party. Bizarre, isn't it? It's just bizarre. But I mean, if you look at Ireland, if the official line there is don't talk to somebody who's got different views from you, I mean, that's kind of how the Good Friday Agreement came about, guys. You know, we... Well, you know, I just, I, I keep seeing John Hume's face. Exactly. In front of me as you speak. And could you imagine if he'd subscribed to that school of thought where we'd be now or where the island of Ireland would be now? Exactly. It, it is bizarre. And, and and the other thing, I mean, on a personal level, this is something that the far right have in common with the with, with, with this kind of diehard Corbyn fans. I put quite a lot out there because I think it's important. I've got a weird job and I, and I do it in a weird way. But I think it's really important. I write and I speak very much from the heart. I wear, I wear almost everything on my sleeve. So anything that you know about me, you know because I told you. Mm. So the idea that you're somehow dropping some zinger on me that's going to pull the rug from under my rhetorical feet and leave me flailing on my back, unable to frame an argument together because you know that I voted for Boris Johnson to be mayor of London in 2008, it's objectively hilarious. I told you that. (laughs) I told you that I voted for Boris Johnson in 2008 while explaining to you, A, how it happened, B, how I managed to make such an epic mistake, and C, how quickly and how completely the scales have fallen from my eyes ever since. So with the zeal of a convert, which anybody religious will tell you, the convert is much more zealous 
than the person who's born into the faith. With the zeal of a convert, I have these conversations. And yet your man will be there on the Twitter giving it, well, he voted for Boris. And they even cut bits off the bottom of the... Uh, there's one tweet out there now, and you've probably seen this one. Someone's cut the bottom off it all. And it says, I voted for Boris Johnson. And, and then it goes on, in 2008, to be mayor of London. Brackets, of course, Jeremy Corbyn fans will use this as proof that I am one of the most fully paid up members of the Conservative Party in the history of the world. And they cut the bottom bit off, the bit that actually describes what I didn't doing. see that, but it sounds excellent. <laughs> and, and other stuff. I mean, the far right lot, they, they'll pick up on the fact that I'm adopted or the fact that my wife and I had fertility treatment to, to have our children. And again, I told you this. How am I ever going to be insulted by yeah, yeah, throwing yeah. some information back at me that I shared in order to do an act of good for people who might be suffering in similar ways? So I think that, to answer your question in the most roundabout way, that's why it doesn't really register on anything like the scale that people who aren't familiar with this sort of treatment might expect it to. I mean, it doesn't get under your skin because it's so bonkers. There are days when if someone's deliberately trying to start a huge pylon on Twitter and, there are, and you're just pissed off because you can't use Twitter. Yeah. Do you see what gotcha. I mean? It's because uh, you've just got to wait for a couple of days for the clouds to clear. But the last couple of times that's happened, it's backfired. Mm. And so, you know, hashtag James O'Brien is a cockwomble or whatever it be, ends <laughs> up being loads and loads of people piling on saying, well, I, I really like him. What's going on yes. here? This is And, and so... I've seen that. So that, yeah, even that now doesn't really work anymore. So it's, um, yeah, look, it's part of the job. It goes with the territory. If you said to me 10 years ago, you can have a massive radio show, you can have a couple of best-selling books, you can have met many of your heroes, you can have a wonderful time. Oh, and by the way, there'll be a few twats trying to coat you on Twitter every few weeks. I'd I'd take that tag, I think. I think they'll take that all day long. You'll be called a cockwomble occasionally and you can have all that. (laughs) All right, go on. (laughs) It's a deal. Why do I sign? Exactly. Yeah, I'll take it. Okay, I've just got a couple and they're totally connected and thank you so much for your time. We're coming to the end, but you don't have a crystal ball, but looking into the future, do you feel that part of Brexit's legacy will actually be an independent Scotland and thus the breakup of the union itself, in your opinion? I'm not so sure anymore. If you'd asked me a year ago, or certainly two years ago, I'd have said yes, fairly unequivocally. But human beings are a funny bunch, aren't we? So uh, also remember, Boris Johnson's not going to stay in Downing Street forever. So looking at the damage Brexit does might actually give people pause about undertaking another schism. If you think of it, so originally... I thought, Christ, you're dragging us out of the European Union, you bastards. We're going to cut you loose as soon as we humanly can. And I think for a while that attitude did grow. That view did grow. It was kind of reflected in the polls. It was certainly reflected in the the sense that Nicola Sturgeon, for one, carried around with her. But I do wonder now, and this is very much crystal ball territory. I've not got much to back it up. But I do wonder now whether the worse it gets, the warier... Scotland will become about the idea of doing another massive divorce. Do you see mm. what I mean? I've got nothing to base it on, and I, and I don't really have skin in the game on that one, on Scottish independence. I've got respect for the arguments on both sides and the people. But I do wonder whether the worse this divorce is, the warier they, they become, the warier many people become about just doing another one quite soon afterwards. It's almost that it's gotten too bad now. So it's the initial impact is like, oh, oh boy, let's go. And then actually the more, as you say, divisive it becomes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and the more economic harm is done as well, of course, you know, the more people feel the economic harm of pulling out of the status quo. I mean, it might be 
that independent Scotland would sort of achieve all of the things that an independent UK was supposed to achieve, but hasn't. It doesn't necessarily have to be logic that's at play here, but emotionally you might think, well, we, you know, we did a big divorce a few years ago and that's not gone great so let's not do another big one now and you actually kind of touched on this before but to finish off it's the thing that i would love so i'm going to throw it out to you you're of irish heritage in like 10 years time there's a united ireland will britain notice would the tory would it would it make the news cycle would it be significantly up the news cycle on the bbc <laughs> no of all the story you think back look listen take you i'll tell you back to worcestershire rural worcestershire in 1983 it would be when we had a fake general election at my prep school, <laughs> I'd be 11. And I stood as the SDLP candidate. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one knew No one knew what it was. Oh my God. It was Jerry Fit. I don't know. One of my heroes, even at that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I stood as the SDLP candidate. And if you, I mean, fast forward 40 years, give or take. And the idea that Ireland could just sort of quite calmly and casually slide into independence after the shit we've all lived through yeah um i mean i mean it's almost unbelievable right it's almost unbelievable you look at how Sinn Féin's polling now on both sides of the border you begin to think it's not a question of if it's a question of when i'm not as on board as you are i mean emotionally probably i am but i think that the economics of it might be bad for the republic for example in in the in the sense of what they would be inheriting but i don't think you would have in this country and i can't quite believe i'm saying this given that you know even 10 years ago graffiti you would routinely see and and football chants you would routinely hear i don't think and i could quite easily be horribly wrong but i don't think it would be greeted here as moment of massive loss if the island of Ireland were to be re- reunited. And, and I've not thought about this very deeply. I've thought more about the Scottish question for obvious reasons. And I can't quite believe as a soon-to-be 50-year-old Anglo-Irishman that I have lived to see that moment come around. I mean, just the moment of thinking if that came to pass, obviously it would not be a pretty process or an easy process for the, for the obvious reasons. But in terms of mainstream popular opinion in Great Britain, outside of parts of Glasgow and what have you, but mainstream popular opinion in Great Britain, I don't think it would be a particularly big deal, no. Wow. It's actually powerful hearing you say that. No, it is. It's powerful because it's over here. Like people like me are just obsessed like with the idea that it could yes. happen in the moment. But yes. what our gut is telling us that it would be greeted with largely indifference across the water. And therein lies the rub. That's the tragedy of the loyalist finds himself in, I suppose. I, I, I think, you, yeah, I think so. I think so. Great. James O'Brien, thank you so, so much for your time. I absolutely love that. Tig, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Now, so, James O'Brien fee, no less. What you think of that one, guys? Class, wasn't that? When I was putting this together, right? And I listened back to it and I listened to the bit about what he reckons would be the reaction in Britain if Ireland unites. It's some moment, like, isn't it? When you just kind of think, like, you know, because I'll give you a sense of the, as I touched on when I was speaking to him, like, Ireland is obsessed with Britain, is obsessed. Like, there's a philosopher, Richard Carney, I think is his name, and he kind of makes the point, what is Ireland without Britain? Like, Ireland has come to understand itself in relation to Britain as say the oppressed versus the oppressor and etc etc but not just around colonialism it's like Ireland's historical and social narrative is only understood in conjunction 
with the narrative of the bigger, badder brother across the water. But I think what's what's kind of funny and it's very revealing is that when you listen to someone like James O'Brien talk about a United Ireland kind of going off and it doesn't even kind of raise a titter really <laughs> in England. It's like when Ireland are playing England in a major football championship or something like that. And everyone's like, this is massive. This is more important than my kids. I need to take a couple of weeks off work to get into the headspace for this. And then you see the corresponding news reports in England. And they're just like, yeah, look, it's Ireland. You know, hopefully pick up three points next game. You know, their bitter rivals are kind of Germany or arguably Scotland. But you feel like they're only kind of saying Scotland are their bitter rivals to give Scotland that. You know, just kind of trauma bone like to kind of indulge them in their brave heart bitterness for a couple of hours Ireland isn't even really registered I don't think with the exception as James O'Brien quite rightly points out with the exception of maybe during the IRA's mainland campaign then there might be a kind of a, an anti-Irishness or then there certainly was an anti-Irishness kicked in and they might have seen us as something of a kind of a, of a rival or whatever but really the sad reality is is that largely Britain doesn't really care that much. Now, I think most of Britain kind of wishes us well. Like, best of luck, lads. A bit like Barbados, you know, you're going off doing your own thing now, lads. And feckin' look, we might see you on holiday at some point. But generally, Britain doesn't really care. And I think that's, that's the final twist in Brexit the movie. When loyalism, feckin', you know, it's, we're, we're at the last, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie loyalism just fucking he's in a room on his own he just realises like oh my god it wasn't the Dublin government all along it wasn't the EU all along it was the fucking Tories it was the British government they, they never cared about me and bang right at that moment me right because I'm in it I'm in the movie playing say Ireland or nationalism I come out of the shadows and I'm like I was trying to tell you this all along boy and loyalism was like oh I know 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 and then I'm like look it doesn't matter boy forgive and forget come here to me and we have a big huge hug like that and everyone in the cinema is like throwing their popcorn in the air like whoa I did not I did not see this coming and uh, we go back to my place and we have a cup of tea and, and he comes to stay with me for a while like whatever and it's like oh my god what a perfect perfect ending so that's it, guys. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Join me next time for a comedy special. Bet you wish you were here.